this week on Big Me Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, this episode is a dig in your scene brought to you by our Patreon folks who voted for it. It was Washington, D.C. versus Athens, Georgia. The votes were heavy. But Athens came out ahead. And this one's been on the, the slate really for the entire time we've been doing this series, Jay. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, you know, it was this. We knew we wanted to do this. We knew we wanted to do Boston because so much interesting stuff happened in Boston in the 80s and 90s. And uh, we're finally getting around to it. And we, we, have, we haven't done the, in the, in the spirit of the podcast, we have not done the obvious ones first. We right. did not no. do Seattle. We're not we did doing not Seattle. Do Athens yet until today. No. Well, and, and you know, we haven't done Chapel Hill yet. That's another one where people were probably thinking, yeah. when, are you, when are you dopes going to get to Chapel Hill? It's kind of important. We'll get there. Uh, we did funny. Australia. We did, we did the entire country of Australia, which in retrospect was kind of dismissive of this, yeah. the individual cities in Australia. Yeah. It's like, oh, one country. It's all the same. Right. Well... Yeah, I don't think that's going to fly for Great Britain. I know. <laughs> I think right. That's going to work. Right. Uh, we'll just go, we, our European episode. We're not, we won't even break it down by country. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cover the Europe in the 80s. What happened? Right, right. Uh, so joining us, of course, we don't know anything about these cities when we you know, get into them. We have to bring on the people who lived it, the people who have written about it, the people who have experienced it firsthand. And to do so, joining us... I don't know where they are. They're somewhere in the country. Uh, we're all at home because of, you know, what's going on. Uh, but joining us, author Grace Elizabeth Hale of the book Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Welcome, Grace. Thanks for having me. And I'm in Virginia, Hustle, Virginia. Virginia. Okay. That's right, because uh, you are a... Uh, teacher, or you're at the University of Virginia. Um, what do you do there? Um, I am a professor of American Studies and History. Uh, so I teach uh, U.S. cultural history, history of popular music, things like that. Oh, so this is perfect then. This, yeah. this is right up, right up the alley. Excellent. Yes. Um, and then also joining us, of course, if we're going to talk about a scene, we always do try to have someone who was a musician in that scene. So they can tell us like what had, who had the worst bathroom or load in situation behind the bar. Like those things are important to know uh, which ones, where did you get the, uh, the, the stamps for the free beers, that kind of stuff. Those are the important things to bands when you're, um, when you're starting out. So joining us from the band, 
Love Tractor, Mark Klein. Welcome, Mark. Hi, guys. It's just great to be with you all. Hey, Grace. Hi, Mark. And there's Love Tractor news. As we were putting this episode together, there was an announcement, right, Mark? Yes, we are in the midst of re-releasing all of our catalog on vinyl um, because it, had, it hasn't been available on vinyl for a million years. And um, the first re-release is happening this fall. There's going to be a single for Record Store Day um, with some specially mixed songs that we worked on with Dave Barbie, who played in Sugar and a m- number of Athens bands, has kind of the go-to studio in Athens. And then one of our former members, Bill Berry, who went on to be a member of REM, he shepherded the mixes as well. And so for Record Store Days, those mixes are coming out. And then the the album has sort of been, in a sense, reimagined. The art has been expanded. And we had to actually remix the entire album because the the quarter-inch masters were damaged. And so, uh, but we kept the integrity of the original sound. So it's exciting. We have all these records coming out again. And they sound fresh and they sound great. And you're talking about the 1982 self-titled debut, right? With regards to those masters? That's right. The eponymous. We um, went back and, you know, when we were getting all the archives together, we um, discovered that the quarter inch, that song had been spliced out from the main master reel from the quarter inch and shipped off to from different soundtracks or, or compilations or things like that. And, just hadn't been archived properly. So there were songs missing. And oh, wow. rather than using, there were safeties of all of the songs. The safeties are a little bit lower fidelity. So rather than using the safeties and splicing those in, um, or the other option was just re- going and remixing um, those five missing songs. We said, well, for the fidelity and the integrity of the fidelity, let's just go and mix the whole thing again. And you know, we had copious notes from when we'd mixed it back in the day. And Dave and Bill were very familiar with um, the engineer who had m- recorded and mixed it. And so it was it was fun going back through it and really keeping the integrity of it. It just sounds, it doesn't sound different. It just sounds better, just fuller. Um, there's, so there are no surprises there. But it was nice to hear it. It sounds very fresh. Um, Fantastic and, uh, news, Mark. That's really great. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. It's, fun. it's fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And we just finished, yeah, we just finished one of the videos and you know, we've got liner notes from Kate Pearson of the B52s, Mike Mills from REM as liner notes, Anthony De Curtis, the former editor of Rolling Stone has done liner notes for it. So, it's fun. It's fun. And you know, it's nice to be able to release something these days. Um, especially in the digital world, because it's the the music industry is very flat when it comes to digital. There's no concept of of past or present. So, right. you know, I hope people listen to it with with fresh ears. Well, that's sort of the motto of the entire podcast is digging up. Uh, when we do album reviews, a lot of the albums have just disappeared from the consciousness of most people, and and a lot of times they're they're brand new to people. So even though something was released in you know 1994, it's a brand new record for people so that's uh that's right up our alley in terms of uh discovering new music and I, i'm curious because you know 
I'm assuming that was probably recorded in 81 or 80 or something like that. Um, were there any concerns? Were there any concerns about actually tracking down and, yeah. you know, I'm assuming that was on tape as well, which can deteriorate, uh, I'm guessing, over the years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, everything was archived. Um, okay. But not su- superbly. Um, but what was interesting, it actually took us a long time to unarchive and to get the digital transfers done because um, – we the people we were using to do the digital transfers were um hired to do like the first 14 years of Austin City Limits and they were having a special tape head made just to do those transfers and so we wanted to use that use them and that special tape head for the fidelity and gotcha. it took about 8 months for that tape head to be hand crafted um and then we were the first ones to, to be able to use that head um, to do our transfers. And so, you know, it's, this would have all happened a year ago, except we were waiting for this tape head. Um, and we'd be talking about the re-release right now of our second album instead of our first. But it's all exciting. It's fun. It's fun to revisit all of this. Well, let's do and, that. Let's, uh, let's do some revisiting of the, uh, of the scene from your perspective and from Grace's perspective. Now, Grace, um, have you spent time previously in Athens? What was your connection to it? I went to the University of Georgia and lived there for years. And I actually played in a band and not an important one like Love Tractor, like Mark. So I'm really thrilled that he's here with us. But, um, (laughs) and I also um, ran a small club. So um, I lived there for a decade um, in the 80s. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, from a perspective of being in a band in, in that period and, and uh, playing in the area, you mentioned about also, you know, the club. Where, where would you go to see bands? I know the 40 Watt is, is sort of the legendary or one of them. Um, but where would, you know, not necessarily a big band, but where would small bands be playing, cutting their teeth in the, in the 80s and, and even into the 90s in the Athens scene? At well, somebody's I, house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it depends on when you're talking about in the 80s. I mean, if you're talking about the early 80s, somebody's house. Um, by the later 80s, there are, there are small places people can play, but it changes over the course of that decade. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, when I, entered, when I came to Athens, and I started in uh, the fall of 1977, Athens was a ghost town. There was n- nothing there. There was the art school, and the art school was sort of a cultural nexus of sorts. Uh, but there were, you know, it was a real rah-rah football town, and that was the big hmm. drawing point. Um, other than that, it was I, I, it was a cultural wasteland, and and I would still consider football to be a cultural wasteland. Um, and the only thing that was really happening was happening at the art school, and and what was interesting at the time was the fact that especially for the professors that were involved art, most of them had been abstract expressionists and that had fallen out of favor. So many of these abstract expressionists were looking for gigs and had been hired up by, you know, universities. And so their teaching methods were, were something that really shook us to our, our core as students. And the art school of the university of Georgia became this club of sorts um, that all the bands basically came out of at least my generation of bands 
either were influenced by people in the art school or came out of the art school. There were no clubs in Athens whatsoever, except for the fraternity kids. And if we, these art students went to those clubs, we would get beaten up. We would, mm-hmm. you know, for sure get beaten up. And so the culture there was completely house parties. And it was people, I would say it was us and them, us being the art students and sort of these musicians um, taking over houses, um, having parties in these houses, and then saying, you know, spinning records is not enough. There's some instruments laying around, people would start playing, or they would form a little band to play. And out of that came the B-52s, Love Tractor, Pylon, R.E.M., you know, the that's sort of the classic school of that. And then the clubs developed after that. I mean, the 40 Watt Club, the famous one, was originated in Curtis Crow Pylon's loft because downtown Athens was desolate. It was empty at nighttime. It was, you know, you'd see tumbleweeds basically blowing on the street. Now, if you go there today, it's you can't get a parking place. There's parking garages and whatnot. So we could rent the top floors of these these buildings in downtown Athens for, you know, pennies. And uh, Curtis um, from Pylon had the top floor of a building on College Avenue right across from the university. Huge loft space that was lit by a 40-watt bulb. And that's, mm. and it's no joke. And he had keg parties there for all of us and like pylon that was the first time that they played was at in his loft um and it would move to other people's houses um or the backyard You know, another one was we all shared a house. I shared a house with Michael and Curtis from Pylon and on a really kind of big street in Athens where all the bands live called Barber Street. And the house was dubbed Pylon Park. And in the back of the house, we had so much acreage that, you know, bands would set up and just play. And the police could never figure out where the noise was coming from so that they could never come around to to shut us down. (laughs) isn't that you know, where Love Tractor debuted? Didn't you guys debut in uh, the house there, Pylon Park? Yeah. Yeah, we did, in fact. We did. I was talking to a beer company the other day because they've named the beer Love Tractor. And they were saying, and they wanted to know about like when we started and all this. I said, well, actually, the first time we played was in this house on Barber Street. And Sam Seawright also lived in the house. And he made beer. He brewed beer for the party which, you know, Vanessa from Pylon was drinking out. No, David Gamble from the Method Actors was drinking the beer out of Vanessa from Pylon's high heel shoes. It was, you know, it's a typical Athens sort of insane experience of that same crowd of people. There was 100 to 150 of us at the time that we all knew each other. We're all still best friends. 
um, that sort of did all this together, made art together, supported each other, were played in bands together. Um, and But it's really important that the foundation was that there was nothing going on there. We were outsiders, so we had to find our own fun. We found each other and we made our own fun and we invented what we had to do to do it. And we were egged on by the professors at the art school. And then it became an industry. <laughs> I mean, you know, just to add to that, I mean, early, other early places people played, um, and Mark certainly jump in here, um, above chapter three records downtown, which is another one of these downtown spaces. Um, there'd be concerts there. I don't know if Love Tractor played there, but I know Pylon played there. And yeah, the Cramps played there. It yeah. was, um, you know, that was chapter three rented that building and they just had the upstairs was empty. Yeah. And okay. I think they threw at maximum three parties in there. One was Pylon. One was the Cramps. They were, the Cramps were supposed to play the Georgia theater. And I don't know what happened. The Georgia theater maybe got spooked. I can tell you what happened because Chris oh. Rasmussen told me. I can tell you exactly what happened. <laughs> Chris would know because he ran the record store. Yeah, they didn't sell enough tickets, and and wasn't wasn't Pylon playing first? Whoever the first band was started to play. No one was there, and the club said they. I mean, the, the they said no, forget it, shut it down. This is going to lose money, and so that's when they moved the show. On the fly, they were like, they scrounged around, and I forget whose PA they got. I know Chris told me his PA, but I've forgotten. <laughs> and uh, set, yeah. it up, set it up at uh, Chapter 3. Yeah, and it was just a big loft space with, you know, set it up. There was no stage. It was an insane night. Um, I remember Peter Buck and I, before the show, we were down in the record store, and, like, I can't even remember the records that they were spinning downstairs before we went upstairs. Uh, for the cramps to play, but you know, Pylon played. We all, I'm, everyone. It was one of those nights where everyone just got zonked out of their minds. But like Lux Interiors was hanging out the outside the window on the second floor. He's leaning backwards outside of the window, singing songs. He could have fallen out of the window. It was it's one of these crazy, crazy nights that would only happen in Athens. And in this, and but you have to also understand that. It was sort of like going into the middle of nowhere because Athens was the middle of nowhere at the time. And there's the cramps playing, you know, in the uh, empty top floor of a building in the, in the middle of nowhere, like some town and you can pick, just put point on point on the map and pick a town. And that's what was going on. And it was crazy. You know, it was crazy. The Cramps, John Cale, um, the people that would come through. Um, and then, you know, it became sort of the, Curtis had his loft, um, and he called it 40 Walk Club. And then with a friend, Bill Tabor, they sort of got smart and said, well, let's move it across the street, um, which was next door to the record store, that we're, the Chapter 3, um, upstairs and this place already had a liquor license no a beer license downstairs it was a sandwich shop and so that they could sort of tag on to that beer license and that's where the 40 watt started uh you know this little space just for all of us to come and start bands and play in there and expand it from there um and downtown was a safe space because there was nothing there nothing 
many people told me that <laughs> prostitutes were there downtown at that time. I didn't move to town until 82, but <laughs> 1982, <laughs> but, but there were, there were prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. Yeah, they, there were, they were up, um, by the Georgian hotel and then by hot corner. Yeah. Um, where, where the prostitutes were. It was crazy. It was just very, very different. And, um, you know, everything was at the daytime, you know, it was all these like men's clothing stores, you know, really old school, you know, shoe stores and this before they built a mall. And, um, and at night it was desolate, absolutely desolate. And so we took it over. Um, because all the other kids were partying at these like big beer halls and that were not near downtown. And um, maybe some of them were down by the railroad tracks, but a lot of them were on Baxter street and you know that, but we, you know, we didn't want to have anything to do with those people. So interesting. It was all out. The other early venue that, that was, that was started, I think they started hosting, these kind of bands. I mean, at the time they would have called it new wave night, but not that that term really fits, but it was Tyrone's OC. It was that like 79 when they started hosting. Um, yeah, it was Tyrone's, um, but there weren't any really bad, you know, there weren't any bands like, you know, Pylon would play there. Maybe. Um, it was still kind of a hippie joint. Yeah. Tyrone. Yeah. And so it'd be like these, but then they realized that they're these local bands and they really, they could fill the house with it. And it, the cover charge would be a dollar, <laughs> which was hilarious. You know, it was a dollar to get in and, um, and then Tyrone's burned down, but um, yeah, yeah and Tyrone sort of wised up and started doing that. And it was really fun and it was a great place. Um, and that was the first other place to start to really start doing it um and other than that you know there was we would you know our big thing was there when we started out there was you know a place in athens to play like the 40 watt i think by the time the 40 watt really got revved up tyrone's had burned down but we'd all played tyrone there's the 688 club in atlanta and that was it there was 930 in dc the 930 club or new york and there was really nothing in between until REM came along and sort of blazed the trail of discovering all these different venues in the Carolinas. Um, and that opened up a whole other thing. They went in and just sort of like bounced out, you know, a 50 mile radius further, another 50 mile, another 100 mile radius, finding all these different venues. Whereas for us in Pylon, it was basically. Atlanta, D.C., New York, anything in between before our image sort of broken that ground, we would get beer cans and beer bottles thrown at us, you know, and because we were just too out there for a lot of those places. That was that famous piece in New York Rocker that said Athens, 19 hours to New York. (laughs) (laughs) So people people would say pylons commuting to New York, you know, they play play maybe dc but maybe just go straight to new york (laughs) just no it's true you know philadelphia was another place it was but it was always it was like dc philadelphia sometimes new york 
Um, and there were weekends that we would all get in the cars and drive. I remember like REM and Love Tractor playing at Danceteria or someplace early on. Maybe we played Danceteria. at because I found the ad. You're right. It was Danceteria. <laughs> you know, getting in cars and, and driving up. Like, you know, this is like on the weekend from, you know, or skipping school on Friday or Monday or something like that. And we'd all drive up and play Danceteria. And, go to dojo on St. Mark's and eat and, and whatnot. Um, but there was nothing in between. And then REM discovered all the places in between, but they had a much more commercial appealing sound than love tractor or pylon. You know, I mean, we were also, you know, we were kind of the art bands. Um, our REM was much more palatable. Um, but then they made it, they made it easier for us because they made us palatable. Do you think that the isolation of the city made the, as you say, the art bands um, more, it gave them an opportunity to develop longer as opposed to when we've talked about Los Angeles or, or New York city, those bands almost have to like hit the ground running because of the fact that it's expensive to live there. And you have to, you know, it's, it's pay to play to get in some of those clubs, especially in the nineties when it gets very competitive and there's lots of alternative bands, you know, vying to get onto seven or eight band bills on a Tuesday. And it seems like when we've talked to folks who are from college towns like a Boston or um, even where I'm at in Columbus, Ohio, there, the, the isolation from, you know, being hours away from a huge city and being driven by a college campus lends itself to letting bands like explore a little bit more and be a little bit more um, less commercially focused, I guess, and not trying to think about how do we get signed to a major, you know, that sort of thing. Did you, did you, you guys feel that? Perfectly. Okay. hundred percent, hundred percent. There was no pressure. In fact, for us, and I know the same with Pylon. I can speak for them. You know, we, our goals were very simple and also very similar. Um, you know, we were all art students and we were applying what we were learning in art school to these visual aesthetics, to oral aesthetics or performance. Um, Cause also, uh, you know, uh, it, it, we, we lived in a place that there was, there was no commercial pressure whatsoever. So we could do whatever the hell we wanted to do. Um, and I can just acknowledge that you, you hit the nail on the head. So um, I would add though, also that the eighties are just really different from the nineties. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. not in any way to say that what Mark is saying isn't true, but it's just a very different world. I mean, people are inventing the music that will come to be called alternative and indie. I mean, some people are using the term new wave early on, then they're calling it post-punk. Then actually a lot of people are just calling it the new music. And it doesn't really exist as a coherent commercialized thing yet. And so there's just a lot less pressure for these 80s bands everywhere. I mean, it's it's just such a different different uh, time period by the time you get to the 90s, especially post Nirvana. I mean, there is just so much more commercial pressure. I mean, people in Athens and, and other places like Athens are able to make fairly decent money playing local clubs in the 80s um, in ways that are not going to be imaginable in the 90s. So I think that just to add to what Mark is saying, um, right. 
And across the 80s in Athens, you always have a kind of hierarchy of clubs. You have, you know, the 40 watt for a long time um, at the top, um, although it goes through different spaces and sometimes they're larger and sometimes they're smaller and there's ups and downs. But um, but there are always other clubs. The Uptown Lounge is a is a is an important club in the mid 80s for a stretch there until the guy that owns it, Kyle, buys the Georgia Theater, um, which then is turned back into a music club. But there are always smaller venues as well where new bands can get started and just play for the door. And the place may only hold 50 people, but if they're paying a couple of dollars a piece, you're, you're getting a, a pretty good bit of money and beers at a discount. And, you know, you can actually uh, get started there and prove yourself and then get a, get a gig at a little bit bigger place. Um, maybe like the uptown or the 40 watt. And so there, there is a kind of way in which um, people's friends will go here, hear them play at least once, even if they hate them or twice. And so people can actually um, have this space to develop and even make a little bit of money to buy a little bit of equipment or, or uh, you know, pay some of your rent, what have you. So it is a, just a very different vibe, um, not just in Athens, but across these smaller scenes, especially in this earlier period. I would even go so far as to say it was the same way in New York, um, that, you know, you could live in New York City in the East Village in the 80s and pay nothing in rent, or you could be squatting. And that's one of the reasons that New York had such a great art scene in the 80s, and also so many great bands came out of New York. I live in mm -hmm. New York now, and we, you know, just the simple fact that when we were, the only places that we could play, as I said prior, was were these other cities like New York, and we would come and we knew all the other New York bands and they were in the same circumstance. The fact that they could rent um, a practice space downtown, you know, in, um, in Alphabet City and they could maybe go rehearse in the day or if they were, you know, they would have to be out of there before nightfall because they would, might get killed. Um, but it was incredibly inexpensive, and it was the same thing in New York, same thing in Athens. And there was also this odd connection, at least in my day, between New York and Athens, between New York musicians, photographers, artists, and Athens musicians, photographers, artists, that there was a lot of back and forth um, from that, which, you know, Grace, you and I could talk about, like Jeremy Ayers and, yeah. and his involvement in, in the factory. Um, and that sort of brought at New York to Athens. There was a, a, a musician, artist, really artist, an artist of lifestyle named Jeremy Ayers, who was the godfather to a lot of us um, in Athens. And he, in the early 70s, had moved to New York and was involved uh, at, in Warhol's factory. And he had a character named Silva then and was in a number of movies with Candy Darling and, and um, some of the other superstars. And he came back to Athens, I think in maybe 75. Um, and when he came back, he sort of brought a lot of New York City with him. And he also left an opening for a lot of us in New York City. So, you know, when the B-52s first went to go play New York City, they had entree, um, entree to a New York that they would not have had entree to if it had not been for Jeremy having lived there and knowing all of the right sort of in crowd people. Um, and I mean, just the simple fact that by the fall of my freshman year in 1977 in Athens, I already knew Chris 
and Tina from the Talking Heads. And that was just by the fact of being in Athens and that sort of Athens-New York yeah. connection. Um, and, you know, it was very tight. But, you know, one of my good friends, Dana, her boyfriend was John Cale. Um, so, you know, we had this other entree into things. And, and we could come back to Athens and do whatever we wanted because there was no commercial concern that we had to make money off of what we were doing. It was great. It was an added bonus. But there was no industry um, to music in Athens. In fact, we noticed when it changed, I think one of the first people that was that moved to Athens to sort of further their career was Matthew Sweet, who, you know, brilliantly moved from Nebraska to Athens, befriended all of us, and we all befriended him because he's such a smart kid. And he was a kid at the time. Yeah, um, 18. Yeah. And mm. um, but he was the first person really to move to Athens to start just to move there as a career move with ambition of being a musician. And he moved there and got a deal with maybe it was Columbia was through Steve Robolsky, who was an A&R person, um, basically paid him to live in Athens and write songs. Um, and he was the first person. And then we would all go off on tour. We'd, you know, the band started doing records. We'd go off on tour and we'd come back and there'd be some more people that had moved there because of that. And this industry started to develop. I mean, and if you go now, it's there is an industry town. It's it's like another Nashville in a sense. There's publishing companies there, there are record companies there, there's tons of recording studios. And when we lived there, there was none of that. And we would have to go to Atlanta. That would be the closest place. If we needed to buy musical instruments or do any kind of recording, um, meet with a lawyer, we would have to leave Athens for all of that. And which was a a plus because we were left alone to do whatever we wanted to do, especially artistically, which was really key to all of us. Um, so, so that, just, yeah. I just wanted to say a bit more about Jeremy Ayers because he was so influential um, uh, on Keith Strickland and Ricky Wilson and the B-52s. They were, they were all friends growing up together in Athens um, high school that he was older. <laughs> Uh, and he um, he was uh, a real mentor to them, and they came up to New York City to visit him when he was part of Warhol's factory, and that was a really um, you know a really important moment for them. And um, they decided, especially Ricky, that they wanted to bring some of that kind of magic back to Athens. So there there is a way in which there is a kind of direct linkage and a, and a very conscious attempt on the part of Ricky to spur that kind of creativity um, that he saw in the factory environs during the time when Warhol was hanging out with all the drag queens. Um, bring, to bring 100%. Kind of 100%. I mean, it, it also, I'd have to say, it can't be stressed enough what a musical genius for Ricky Wilson was. That just absolutely brilliant. Um, and that he, they really did bring that back to, to Athens, this aesthetic that they brought back. I mean, to me, it's sort of ironic now. It's like my business partner here in New York, we have an ad agency, was Andy Warhol's creative director from the mid-70s until when Andy died. And so he was involved in the factory. I, it's like I can't escape it. You know, it's like from Jeremy Ayers now to, to you know, my business life is still tied up somehow with Andy Warhol. Um, I mean, Ricky, but, I think, is a really just an amazing person that hasn't, you know, there's a way in which the B-52s as a whole, I don't think, have gotten 
taken serious. They're, they're popular, but they're not taken seriously enough, to, at least it seems to me, um, and, and Ricky in particular. But Ricky was out in high school in Athens in 1970. And just to, to give you the historical context, that's the same year they integrated the schools and shut down the black high school, 1970. And he that's was right. out. So, and, and wow. Jerry, Jeremy was a real mentor on that front too. He was connected to a, a group of older gay men and women connected a lot to the university, also to the art school. Some of them were professors, some were students, grad students. Um, there was a vibrant, somewhat closeted, would you say, Mark, uh, gay community in Athens and Jerry was connected yep. to it and also Ricky and Keith. Well, well when I got there, it, you, know, you were never closeted. You were not. I was never. I was never closeted. <laughs> Keith and Ricky were never closeted. Right. I, I um, some of the people in this community were. Some were very much so, and some still are. Yeah. And um, that's why but, I'm not naming know, names. <laughs> I will. If I have a drink or two. But um, you know that also is a really important thing. I, you know, Grace and I discussed is that that there the there's this sort of aesthetic that came from the gay community that permeated the, the atmosphere of the music that was being created. Because a lot of these creators, myself included, were gay. And um, I mean, you know, Michael from R.E.M., you know, it's virtually everyone in the B-52s except for Cindy. Um, you know, it was very much this gay aesthetic that... Yeah that was happening there that really flavored what was coming out of Athens also that made it even more apart and more separate than other places. Then say, if you do something on Chapel Hill, that wasn't a part of their sort of overriding um, aesthetic, but yeah, I think that's one of the things that gets left out of the story too much, just because of REM's centrality and the fact that Michael was not, um, open about his, his sexuality, at least not in a kind of super public way um, in those those early years that people don't understand just how queer and how gay the the scene is in Athens. And that creates a lot of space for different, different kinds of aesthetics, different musicians. It, it creates a lot of space for women, frankly. Um, yeah. you know, it's not just the guys that were the, the straight nerdy guys noodling on their guitars all through high school in their bedrooms. You know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of different, those folks are there, but there's other kinds of people too, very much in the scene. And the early 50 B-52s is really in many ways modeled on those kinds of burlesque and dramatic uh, uh, performances. It's almost a kind of performance art as much as it is music. I'm not taking away from the music by saying that, but in the early days, um, that's a lot of what the B-52s were doing. So that all of that is very important to the Athens scene and stays there, despite the fact that R.E.M. sort of first becomes famous as the four guys, traditional rock band structure. People mm -hmm. don't necessarily know that Michael is not straight, um, you know, and, and I think people have that vision of Athens, but th that's missing a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, queer is the best way to describe it. And also feminist, you know, women played such a huge role in the development of everything in Athens. Um, uh, and everybody that I was involved with, they were either queer, a lot of straight, they're also feminists. Um, 
that all those sort of boundaries. I mean, you know, these artists that were women that were the supporters of a lot of the bands that Carol Levy, the photographer, Sandy Phipps, people that helped manage these bands. I mean, there was a feminist ethos also that, that hasn't been talked about. I, I don't think um, that was there, but simply because of the group of people again, were so were outsiders, outliers. Um, and they sort of, they did, they found themselves. And even to go back to what Grace is saying, it's, it's, it can't be stressed enough that the B-52s, what they were doing, people know them as like for Love Shack and these funny lyrics and things like that. But as a musician, when you look at what they were doing structurally, it's brilliant. It's as brilliant as Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or Roy Orbison. They were doing these amazing things musically and, and especially the influences they were pulling from were so out there um, from Fellini, from Yoko Ono. Um, I would go over to Jeremy Ayer's house and he would have recordings of people playing, you know, these early electronic instruments from the 1920s, the Ondes Martineau. Um, and it, it, just so much happening intellectually um, and it much more intellectually so than just say this wild crazy party scene that everyone was taking drugs sure that existed but there was this complete intellectual side you know there was racism was not something that was I mean there was I can remember being shocked being in Athens and going into buy my art supplies and at this old art store next to the art school run by these old rednecks and you know them using the n-word and just being sort of shocked by because i grew up in atlanta and i grew up in atlanta in the you know basically the civil rights era you know daddy king would come talk to teach at my school, you know, Martin Luther King's father. But, you know, among all of these musicians, you know, it was like R&B music was a big deal. And, um, you know, any kind of racism was really frowned upon. Feminism was was a big deal. Out queer culture was a really big deal. Um, so there was this landscape that was laid out in front of us that allowed us to do so much. Um, and I, I'm thankful for it that we all sort of happened into it. I really, I ascribe to the Brian Eno's concept of, um, scenism that it all comes out of a certain time, place, and the group of people that are all there, that mm-hmm. everybody contributed to it. Um, it wasn't, a scene didn't develop because there were some bands that played great music and then people came there for that. The, the, the bands were the symptom of all the great things that were sort of going on. Um, well, I think that this, this is an interesting... Um, yeah, we're supposed to going on. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But Jay and I, uh, it might have been the last episode or two episodes ago, talked about, we um, revisited Nutramilk Hotel's album In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a band that was not originally from, they were from, I believe, Ruston, um, Louisiana and like a lot of the like Olivia Tremor control and and these elf and six bands they kind of came to Athens and yeah. developed based on 
you know, were attracted to what was going on there and, and obviously school and those factors. And then when I, you know, my consciousness as far as Athens sort of started in the 90s, not only because of, of REM, but bands like Of Montreal, which almost seems like the natural progression of when you're talking about this culture that had developed in the 80s, Of Montreal seems like the natural sort of evolution out of the B-52s, out of these more experimental and, and New York-influenced yeah. um, artists, and Kevin Barnes taking it in a completely wild and different direction. And I don't think I made that linkage until you guys started talking about it. And that's really fascinating to hear how this has been such a consistent um, scene in that respect. Well, I think it's, I mean, one part is we're skipping over a whole sort of story of the mid eighties to late eighties and early nineties bands. And yep. that, that are the, that happened between the time period that we've been talking about. Um, early 80s to mid 80s and um and the elephant six collective um that's really more about the mid 90s um and that are those are bands like um the barbecue killers which um is really and that's really the band that in many ways is the kind of leader of the anti-rem crowd and by that i don't mean that they hate rem i mean that they're just like we're not following that model we're not sounding like that we're not going to be yeah. that you know i don't mean that they don't like them personally but um, but maybe maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they sort of, in the beginning, just cannot stop kind of like spoofing and goofing on REM because they think R the REM people take themselves too seriously. Um, and they're very much um, sonically more, more moving towards a harder edge sound than early 80s Athens bands. But performatively, you know, they've got members that are not straight. They're, they have a very, their own very queer aesthetic. And um, they've got two women. They've got Claire Horn on guitar, who's mu very much in the line of guitar players from Athens that invent their own tunings and their own ways of playing, you know, self-taught uh, guitar players. Um, and I think that we have to sort of acknowledge those groups as a kind of bridge to where a band like of Montreal is going to end up. Um, because the barbecue killers were, if they came out like a few years after they did, especially right along the moment when um, Riot Girl is breaking open, they would have been huge. Oh, right. 100%. <laughs> they would have been huge because Laura Carter was so charismatic. And this is Laura Carter one. There's, there are two important Laura Carters in Athens music. And I'm speaking of the older one. Um, but the Barbecue Killers and other bands that they were connected to, um, Time Toy, Eat America. Um, it's not Gap. Is all Gap, Kilkenny Cats, although they went through many different variations, but a certain period of the Kilkenny Cats, Mercyland, which is David Barbie's um, really yeah. big deal band from that era. Um, Jack started his first record company and had Mercyland before he um, before he operated recording studios. Um, so that was a whole nother era. And those bands really felt like REM had sold out, um, that they had given up on this kind of glorious, um, uh, mm -hmm. original, inventive, um, anti-commercialism that had empowered the early scene. And I'm not saying this is necessarily fair, but that was the thinking. <laughs> right. And that they were going to not follow that path. They were absolutely not going to follow that REM path. Athens was full in the mid to late 80s of bands trying to be REM. And then it was oh, full yeah. of bands trying not to be REM. 
So yeah. I think that's a really rich period musically. Bands like the Squalls um, have huge followings and are really bridging the kind of um, artsy music of, of Love Tractor and Pylon and, and what we later think of as jam bands, um, like widespread yeah, I mean, panic. widespread panic, huge. Yeah. Um, I have to, I have to second you on the, on barbecue killers. I mean, they, they were one of my favorite Athens bands. Um, and Laura and I were great friends. Arthur and I are still really good friends. Yeah. Fact, Arthur's we a good friend of mine too. <laughs> great, yeah. We were texting people. the other night. Um, and you know, every time I, he comes to town, I, I get the chance to see him, which I, you know, he's such a lovely guy, but Laura was just a blast. Um, and, you know, it was a candle burning at both ends, but her ideas, what she, the way she drove everything, I mean, the stage presence, I, and she was sort of shocked because, you know, I was from this arty band and we were already on the road and touring and having some success and come back and, and, you know, we'd be one of the bands that she'd want to make fun of, but I loved it because I loved them so much and they were doing exactly the right thing at the right time you're 100 percent though correct if they if it'd been four years later they would have been enormous they would, yeah, have been and they would do things like go on the cable access channel and i don't know if you guys remember you'd have to be a pretty big rem fan but rem made this huge big deal about how they would never lip sync in their videos michael Stipe wouldn't lip sync and uh and this was this big big thing and so it was always in the news always reported on how authentic rem was and so the barbecue killers go on the cable access tv program in athens and then they lip sync to the song <laughs> when the whip comes down wearing a butthole surfers t-shirt which is just a total jab at rem because the butthole surfers had been living in town and pranking on rem and you That's know right. And, and they were just so wildly inventive like that. Laura Carter, the Barbecue Killers staged, like one time they were there playing, I think it was the Uptown, and she actually, the people carried her in strapped to a cross. It was like- I right was there. Her, imitating was Christ. There. And this is, during, this is during the Reaganite rise of the Christian right. You know, the constant battle in town is with the Prince Avenue Baptist Church at the time, politically speaking. The mayor is for a while a member of that church, and there's constant fights over alcohol sales, and this, this church is trying to sort of spread its conservatism across the town. And she has the nerve to, you know, to pretend to be God um, on the Saturday before Easter. So, you know, they were just, uh, they were... They were they were fantastic. Um, do you remember I, I that, was there you that, that night. show, Mark? I was at the show. She was crucified on stage, and yeah. then she got married. Then yeah. she got married to her girlfriend on stage. Yeah, that was a that was a great great show. <laughs> I loved them. I mean, yeah. Laura Carter had the best "fuck you" attitude to stuff, and she wasn't a she was fearless. And it also goes back to this idea of queer culture and feminism. I can't stress enough about the, this feminist concept that so many of these women that were in, in this, creating this music had, um, you know, they weren't, they weren't these girls that were, you know, Athens was full of women that were there to get their MRS degrees. And these, uh, the gals that we all loved and hung out with were the complete opposite of that. They were greater, if not equal, greater than all the guys. Um, and they kicked our asses and they kept us in line. Um, 
you know, I think it was the girls and the queers, you know. Yeah. And, and some the, of the girls the were queer straight too, boys so. were running. <laughs> poor straight boys were running scared from it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the um, it's also worth establishing the context of a time when feminism is really under assault in the mainstream popular culture during the Reagan era. You know, it's, it's had its 70s moment. And it's in retreat. And so it was very, very refreshing to see these incredibly strong women um, just defy all gender conventions, whether they were queer or not, and, um, and just, you know, make their own music. It was, it was, it was inspiring. It even, it even goes into the 90s with Linda Hopper and Magapop. Yeah, um, well, and OOK was fantastic in the 80s. I loved yeah. OOK. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we just, in January, we did a show with OOK and Magapop, which Linda Hopper and I said, well, get both the bands together so you and I have a whole weekend we can hang out together because we're best friends. We were, another funny thing about all of this is a lot of us were in the same dorm in Athens at freshman year or freshman, sophomore year. We were all in Reed Hall. Bill and Mike from REM, Sandy Phipps, who ended up being in part of REM's management team, Linda Hopper, who was an OOK and um, Magna Pop, myself, um, Sam Seawright artist, just a number of people that were part of this scene. And again, the scene was so important to everything that we all sort of lived together under one roof at you know, as kids just start a university and then we moved out of that and lived in the same houses with each other. Um, you know, a lot of it, you know, there's other people that left this sort of a side story. I guess you should, I, that's something I, I won't go into unless you want to, but like people that left Athens and came to New York and really sort of created this East village scene that is now results in RuPaul's drag race. Yeah. Um, Hmm. There was Mark Fred. Who was, Atlanta, for example. Yeah, yeah. But Mark Fred, who was part of the Athens scene, was also had this drag persona named Happy Face. Yeah. Um, that was tied in with RuPaul and the Atlanta guys. Larry T, who wrote Supermodel, who was my boyfriend at the time. We were like 19 years old. He was he was my boy, my Atlanta boyfriend who played in the fans. And I saw him on stage like, oh, my God, he's the cutest. Um and that all tied in. And Mark Fred was part of that. It's a whole other side story that is now RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. <laughs> that was this tie in between Athens and Atlanta and that same sort of queer aesthetic that was happening. That you go on YouTube and TikTok and you see all these teenage queer kids that are using the lingo that we were coming up with back then. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just, you know. It's cr- it's great. It's wonderful, um, but you know, it's it. Athens had an effect all over the place. We would go on tour. We'd play Seattle. And we would see the guys from Nirvana in the audience. Um, you know, um, all of you know is. And then the next thing was Nirvana was big. I remember I was at Mike Mills' house one night, and we were listening to Nevermind and. Def, some Def Leppard record and like just you know the record company would send us records and we just like listened to it and and we put on Nevermind and we said we both looked at each other and said oh wow everything's about to change because we could hear it 
this is this great, great band. And then I remember being doing a show and this is probably early nineties playing a show in New York. And anytime we played New York, we would always play at Maxwell's in Hoboken because Steve Fallon was a great friend and he owned this tiny club that was the whole center of this Hoboken scene. And it was de rigueur to play there because it was the best time you would have. All your friends would be there. It was a tiny, tiny club. Um, and Bob Mould was there hanging out um, with Steve. Um, again, more queers. Um, and Bob, I was talking to Bob. I said, what are you doing? Why are you in New York? I said, oh, we just got off tour. I guess it was Husker do. Um, yeah. Or maybe he'd done a solo, solo tour. I can't remember. But he just got off tour and come back from Europe. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, we had an opening band, this band Nirvana. And he said, those guys are going to be dead. Because they were just like destroying everything. And they were all doing drugs. And this, it was really prescient what he was saying. You know, a few years later, Kurt Cobain was gone, which was a great loss, um, you know, for an amazing talent. But, you know, this sort of reach of Athens, it it did reach all across the country. I thought you were going to tell the story about introducing Bob Mould to his uh, to his future partner. Oh, I can, well, Bob's <laughs> written a whole book. Bob's written a whole book about that. But yeah, yep. Kevin. In fact, I, I spent Fourth of July with now with Kevin, who was Bob's boyfriend, managed um, managed um, Bob and Sugar and um, Kirsten Hirsch. Um, um, like Kevin was at the, our show at Maxwell's and Bob was there. I'm like, what are you doing here, Kevin? It's like, Oh, I'm hanging out with, with, um, he had yet to meet Bob. And he said, I'm hanging out with Steve. Cause we all, anytime you come up there, you want to hang out with Steve Fallon who owned Maxwell's and also had a record label. You know, if it, not for Steve Fallon, there really wouldn't have been the feelies. Um, the bongos, all of those sort of New Jersey Hoboken bands. And um, that's the night that Kevin and Bob met, which was a very, started a very rocky relationship that, you know, Bob ended up writing a, a biography, which really the biography is about his relationship with Kevin. So, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> there are lots of these. It's sides a good one. Though. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. You know. I want to I want to come back though and push back just a tiny bit on the on the feminist narrative. I mean, I definitely do think those women were there, and as I said, they were inspiring. But you know, there there were plenty of um, and Mark was never one of these people, but there were there was plenty of sexism there too. Um, I agree. To oh, say. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and and I won't name names, but there there was a lot of um, you know not very good behavior that would get me too today. Um, that was there too. Oh, I. Totally agree with that. You know, yeah. not not from the queer boys. No, um, not but, not you. No way. <laughs> no, not from the queer boys. I mean, we were feminist allies, and the and the feminists were queer allies all the way. Yeah. And we all knew each other. We were all best friends. But you know, a lot of the straight boy rockers, especially that came there later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would there say assholes. there were issues. You know, yeah. there were issues. Um, but I, they would also get called out. But, you know, there are Me Too mo- moments with some of that. And, yeah. and I know some, some gals have called that out and good for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not with my girlfriends. My girlfriends would have kicked ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that the, 
the the amateurism of the scene that was the amateurism that was prized and the kind of ethic that people learned in the art school of try anything just you don't have to be an expert you don't have to do it for your whole life you can explore new mediums of art and music can be explored in the same way i think that actually um despite the fact that there were some sexist guys in the music world um that actually provided a lot of space for women to become musicians that's not always the case in scenes so you have somebody like linda stipe um and linda hopper and they create this great band okay um and linda stipe uh, is of course michael stipe's sister but but she is also a very talented and a great musician in her own right and uh you know she had experienced this incredible creative community in athens but then she told me stories when i was interviewing her of being um just having people just be horrifically awful to them when they're trying to sound check of performing in places where people some more than once somebody unplugged her bass during a show because they didn't like the way she was playing they would tell her like she's the strings hard enough and not to play that way so you know people definitely experienced um sexism uh, and, and and some of what i'm talking about with linda's stories were road stories from playing other places um but yeah, i think i can't imagine that happening in athens like, no no that that didn't happen in athens but just just i think it's important to sort of suggest, to to say that the town though there was definitely some sexism was more nurturing than many other places that were um developing music scenes at the time i i would argue of of women musicians well especially when you look at the entire music industry you know even today it's so male dominated and so completely sexist and you know when we were talking to record companies and dealing with all that i mean it was such a straight world and to be gay and to be out was such a no no and it was a really you know it's tough i mean even the b52s i mean come on everyone knew they were gay but they they couldn't come out until like until the 90s just to be really out professionally um because the record business was so macho and was really anti-queer anti-feminist um and that's the structure of that business i think the movie business is the same way i mean obviously you see it from the me too movement but i would also say that the entire culture was that way just to add to what you're saying i mean in the 80s the culture was so homophobic so feminist oh, yeah. so so um the, the and there was something that was a mainstream culture back then that i think it's hard for people young people today to understand that there ever was something so kind of centralized and conventional about culture but the culture wasn't fragmented like it is now there was a mainstream and it was extremely anti-gay anti-queer and anti-feminist and, so, and racist yeah and absolutely horrifically racist which which you know is a topic we could talk more about in the Athens scene which which is interesting one of the things i found really interesting writing my book was how many key players in the scene had lived through school integration in high school um you know lived through the integration of the public schools and 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 that had been part of their formative experience um and i thought that i think that's really interesting i mean the scene is 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 very white and i think that's an issue it's not 100% white but it's white um and i i would argue that many people commit what we would now call microaggressions um there it's not a it's not a place that's perfect in any way but 
Um, it is a place that shapes itself in opposition to a pretty outwardly racist white Southern middle class and working class culture at the time. That is that, it, you know, you heard people say the N word. I mean, I mean, I'm younger oh, yeah. than Mark and you heard it a lot. Um, and so there is a way in which the scene is created um, against that vision. Like, isn't there some other way to be a white Southerner besides that? kind of a racist Yahoo idiot <laughs> vision. Um, and so I think that's another important aspect of, of Athens that maybe we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, there's two points to that. One is that I discovered after my freshman year at the University of Georgia was that I, it, nothing that really entered my mind, but that University of Georgia was a traditionally 100% white school, even though Charlene Hunter, Hunter Galt was the first person to integrate the school, you know. The, um, but it, even in my day, it's not where any black kids that I knew from Atlanta wanted to go to school. They were going to, you know, I remember coming back and I had a, after my freshman year, I had a summer job and I was working in, at, in operations at a bank and a friend of mine from high school was there. And I said, well, I haven't seen you. Where, where have you been? He said, oh, I'm you know, I'm off at school in D.C. I'm like, where? And he said, Howard. Oh, and I said, well, I went to the University of Georgia. Why don't you come there? And he looked at me, like gave me this look like, are you stupid? You know, why the fuck would I go to the University of Georgia? And and I didn't realize it until then. It just didn't dawn on me in my sort of coddled white world that I grew up in that anyone that was any person of color that wanted to go to school would certainly not choose to go to the University of Georgia um, because of all the 90% Yahoo. white through the, eight, yeah. through the 80s, 90, 90% white and small, much smaller than 10%. Than well, I looked up the statistics, so I can tell uh, you that it was, but, but that doesn't mean it's all African-Americans, that 10%. And the African-American population is about five, 6%. During that if you were African-American, it wasn't a school you wanted to go to. And if I was at, if I'd been African American, I certainly would not have wanted to go there. Um, looking back, I mean, you know, I was young and naive when I first went to school there, and um, I, you know, I thought that I was enlightened, but I wasn't. And I really realized it until, like I said, the after my freshman year, I realized, oh, those rednecks that we're all hiding from in Athens. You know, they're also racist. This is why there are no black students at the school. And, you know, it took a black kid to explain it to me. Um, but, you know, I still go back to say among the crowd of people that we were with in the art school, those sort of behaviors were unacceptable, um, at least in my formative years in Athens. And being in that school, and specifically our school, because we didn't consider ourselves students at the University of Georgia at all. You know, we'd walk outside the art school, and there'd be some Camaro pulled up in front, just waiting for us to walk out. And, you know, a bunch of frat boys in it. And the minute we'd open the door, walk outside the school, you'd hear they'd scream out of the car, art students are faggots, and then they'd floor it, and you'd hear the wheels spin off, and... You know, they go hightailing down the street laughing. And we're, you know, we didn't, we didn't think it was particularly 
uh, you know, insulting. We thought it was actually hilarious that they were doing that. But, and, you know, it was, it, it, we were very sort of, we protected ourselves, I think. And then it changed. I mean, especially when I look back at Athens in the 90s, it was very, very much a different place because, you know, everyone in the country knew about it. And many bands had moved there um, to work there. I was really happy when Elephant Six happened in Athens because to me, they were one of the few groups of people or artists that moved there that really had the same ethos that we all had um, when we started out. They were there. They knew it was sort of a fertile ground for them to be able to do whatever they wanted. And I really like a lot of what came out of those bands. Um, And I still do. They, you know... Apples and Stereo, Olivia Tremor Control, all of that. Elf Power. Elf Power, Neutral Milk Hotel, all of that. You know, the other band that's never talked about in the 90s, which is, to me, one of the greatest Athens bands of all time, The Glands. Yeah. Really, really terrific band. Made up of, well, it's funny because now we've sort of co-opted half of The Glands into Love Tractor and and Pylon Reenactment Society has co-opted them. But Doug who was the bass player in the glands joined love tractor in the mid nineties. And now Joe, who was the drummer of the glands is love tractors drummer. But, you know, I go, and I'd known Ross for years and I had no idea that he was a songwriter at no idea whatsoever. And, and then they put out that album and I, I, I have to tell you, I was floored. First of all, how brilliant the record was. And, Lord, that I that that Ross was such a great songwriter, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the band, The Glands. No, that'd be a good Ross. one to do in the digging up, the digging up thing. <laughs> I mean, that's a good, Sounds that's like a good it. option. <laughs> Is uh, Double yeah. Thrill Double Thriller the album you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, um, and I think it was it New West just re-released all of their stuff, I believe. Is it New West, Grace? Do you know? I don't know. They just did Pylon. I think they're on an Athens kick. Yeah, they. It's funny because we have the same release date as Pylon's um, uh, box set, which is a great also example of how Athens works with this friendship community. Is any other town would be going, oh no, we have the same release date. You know, we're competing against other. You know, Vanessa and I text. We're like, oh, we have the same release date. Let's celebrate. What can we do together to make this all happen for each other? So it's a different. It's still that among this group, this crowd of people. Um, you know, cool. some of the later bands, I don't know. But, you know, also the, all of the Elephant Six guys that I know are 
phenomenal people. They're great musicians. They come over and play with us when I'm down in Athens um, and help us out. Trust. Like, you know, we were doing some shows. I couldn't remember any of the songs. And, you know, some of those guys, Brian Poole would come over and teach me my songs. That <laughs> played here. Um, one, one person we haven't talked about, I think, that again sort of bridges the stories we're talking about um, is Vic Chestnut. I mean, uh, you can't talk about Athens music without talking about Vic Chestnut. The best songwriter ever to come out of Athens. Um, absolutely. A man, an absolute genius writer, um, you know, with a, with a difficult story. But uh, he, he was a, a good friend of mine for years, and um, his death was really tragic. Oh, it's so tragic. It still echoes. And there's so much drama still surrounding that. He was, Vic, everyone knew Vic. And then all of a sudden, Vic was writing songs and playing music. And I remember, like, we would be on tour, and I would come back, and everyone's like, oh, Vic's doing this. You need to go see it. And I'd be like, really? And I'd go, and I'd, you know, be bowled over. I was, I, first time I saw him perform, because I'd known him. And I had no idea that he could write songs. And I went and saw him, and I was, like oh my god this is incredible and then the last time i think i saw him play was maybe 2000 at south by southwest i was working for ipg which is a holding company that owns a ton of advertising agency and i ran the entertainment division for them so i'd always have to go to these different conventions to search out acts and whatnot because you know if a if I need to license music or do sync stuff for music or find an actor or performer to be in a commercial or in something else, you know, I need to be around. And in fact, it was that same South by Southwest. I saw that was the last time I got to see Vic play because I didn't live in Athens any longer. Um, and I also saw the glands play and it, which was one of the best sort of like weekends of my life because Vic was at the height of his power and his band and um i it, he played upstairs someplace in austin and i was just it was one of those where i was so taken aback that i after the show i i, I didn't even go back to talk to anyone in the band i was just so blown away i just had to leave go back to my hotel and just let it digest i enjoyed it so much um and i can't express what a great talent he was and that he really, to me, was Athens through the 90s, that he was the torchbearer um, and, and kept things going and some, some that we all looked up to. Also, J.D. Hollingsworth, I mean, you know, turns out to be this great writer. Um, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just don't want to leave the story of Vic without, without seconding. What a, what a genius. Um, he, Absolutely. He would play at the grit just out on the patio, and then he played at the 40 watt. Um, the posters would say every Tuesday till hell freezes over. And that's pretty, I mean, it was like a year of Tuesdays he played. And then I, I owned a place called The Downstairs for about three and a half years, and, and he would play there and just pack, pack, pack the place. But the thing about Vic was, that most of the time he would be absolutely transportively brilliant. But the time invariably when you got your friend to go who'd never seen him perform or your friend from Atlanta drove up or, you know, some, you made some big deal effort to get somebody important there, he would just suck. 
he would get drunk or stoned or something and just get just really fuck it up like he he thought it was part of his art performance practice to sometimes just be really bad and like you know not give the audience what they wanted and invariably that would have been when you made some huge effort to get someone to go who'd never seen him um and you know, he always had a little bit of a self-sabotaging streak in him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You know, a kind of fuck you to the business thing going. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. So the fact that he tired, titled his major label debut About to Choke and then, you know, a couple of shows into his major tour just took off in the van and left the rest of his band, including his wife, just standing on the street. And I think it was St. Louis, but I might have the wrong town without even their <laughs> luggage. You know, that was, that was Vic. And, you know, that there, was Vic. there was the joy of Vic. And then there was the jerkiness of Vic. And it was yeah. all part of the package. It was part of the package. A hundred percent part of the package. You know, Kevin O'Neill will tell you, you know, talk about there are plenty of people. Yeah, we were touring at that point when he was really starting to take off and uh, we were, you know, we were gone. Um, Just like REM was gone. You know, we were out on the road working. And then after that, I was gone. You know, after we retired the band for like five years, you know, I was in D.C. and New York. So I, you know, I was completely out of the business in the sense I wanted to be out of the business to get away from it before we sort of got it back together. And, you know, when I got to see Vic again, it just, you know, drove it all home to me that this is the, I always felt like he was sort of the culmination of everything that had happened in Athens. That it all, he was this angel on the head of a pen. Yeah. Um, he he that, was really interesting too, because he started out with the mu- his musical start in Athens with, was, was with the folk music people. There was a huge folk yeah. music community in Athens and Art Rosenbaum who was an art professor was very involved there and that's the whole connection to all the folk artists and folk musicians comes through people like Art Rosenbaum and another art professor Andy Nassis but but yep. um, Vic got really into the the folk music community um, and the songwriting of old country music and folk music and that is how he started performing and they had a rule that you couldn't play your own music in the music scene you it was bad to play covers you had to make your own music and it was to be original in the folk music scene you had to play covers you weren't allowed to play your own music and um all the folk music people that i interviewed said that they finally after a while realized they just had to make an exception for vic they just let him play whatever he wanted because it was going to be worth it to hear it um, but you can hear the, those roots of his music, I think, really strongly on his first couple of albums, which for me just really remain absolute go-to music. Little and, it's great. Um, yeah. You know, it's um, like one of the top 10 albums out of, out of that town. But again, it's another one of these great records that came out of Athens and, you know, launched a thousand ships, other ships, you know so much great stuff and he was such a talent but you know i such. think in some ways there's another story there to tell too that that he would never have been recorded if it wasn't for michael stipe michael stipe paid for those yeah. early recording sessions and connected him to um uh his record label um texas hotel tell uh, what was that friend of michael's i'm totally blanking on michael's friend that was one of the people who ran texas hotel um 
Uh, oh, you know, oh I, I can't remember. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, um, Michael really, um, there, you know, there were periods in the late 80s when REM was home a lot. And those guys got very involved in the town, all of them, producing music, jumping up on stage and playing with local bands, um, you know, doing things like, you know, pr not just producing, but helping pay for John Keane Studio to record um, Vic, and uh, that was just really wonderful. I mean, they were sort of learning from the scene and giving back to the scene, but they were so famous and they had so many resources. Um, and I think that's as part of REM's story that not that many people know, how much they participated in and gave, gave and shared and also got from the town in that late 80s, early 90s moment when they stopped touring and yet they hadn't moved away. They all still lived there. Yeah, it's true, you know, because there were points where, especially when R.E.M. got their Warner Brothers deal, yeah, that they had that chance to sit back, which at the time was the biggest record deal I think anyone had ever gotten. You know, they had got that $80 million advance. Um, and that was when they, what was their first Warner Brothers record? Was it Green? It was Green. Yeah. You know, and they toured a couple of those and then they came back and they sat back and they said, you know what, we've done a, we spent the whole eighties touring nonstop. We're taking some time off. We're selling your records, you know, and they were selling records right and left for Warner brothers. And, you know, Warner brothers was a great label yeah. at that time because well, it was an artist. Label. And, um, you know, out of time. I mean, you know, they, they just didn't tour then. They refused. Yeah, they, no. Fine, we're not going to do it. But you couldn't go out in Athens without seeing them around 18, I mean, excuse me, 1989 or so. Yeah. 89, 90. You know, they were, if they were not on tour, they were, and they weren't on tour as much in those years. They were, you'd see them all the time out. Yeah. And I think that, and those, that was important yeah. for the scene, for a lot of those bands that they, that they helped. Which is so funny because those were the years, I mean, 89, like from 86 to probably 92, we were on tour nonstop. And I, you know, with, you know, I'd come back and maybe I'd see the guys in REM, but they'd always go like, oh, where have you guys been? You need to go on tour and be like, dudes, we just got back from a year on tour. Where have you been? <laughs> and you know, it was always a, sort of a joke with, with, them because we would do it was like ships passing in the night and it's funny because i never realized how big rem had gotten until maybe the late 90s um because i just you know we were so involved in our career and doing our own stuff and i you know i our our paths would never cross on the road and we'd always just hear about them oh rem this that and the other and then in the late nineties, I remember I was sitting around talking to Bill Barry and he was like, Oh man, we were talking about, you know, old road stories and war stories of, you know, rock and roll stories. And he was saying, yeah, we were playing this arena or that football field or, and I was like, Oh, wait, <laughs> I didn't realize it's, it's like, I had no clue. I honestly had no clue. I just knew they were doing really well. And, uh, which is ironic. I mean, it was just sort of my, I guess, planned ignorance to all of that. But they did, you know, to reiterate Grace's point is they came back in and 
you know, wanted to help everyone out. In fact, when Love Tractor was really kind of like falling apart and we knew we needed to stop because we'd been on the road so long, Peter said, Peter came in and said, Mike needs to take a break. Mike wants to go on, Mike, who played in Love Tractor, I'll replace him and go on the road with you guys. And I looked at Peter and said, are you crazy? I don't want to be on the road anymore. You know, but that's the how, that's sort of how it worked. I mean, he didn't want to be, that's also typical Peter. He's still on the road. He's still out playing. Mm. You know, if he doesn't have a band or something like that, I mean, he must be going insane right now under COVID because he can't go tour because he loves rock and roll so much. He loves performing. But that was Peter. And also Mills, all those guys. I mean, they were really, you know, they were real boosters. And so were the B-52s, I would say. Um, very much so. Anyone that, you know, everyone shared in their success. Um, they paid it forward. Would you disagree with that, Grace? I mean, you've spoken to so many people. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think that the REM guys, uh, you know, especially given that a certain segment of the earliest scene folks um, thought that they weren't arty enough, that they were too pop. And there was this whole kind of like a little bit of a thing about REMs not really, you know, not really part of our thing because they, they are too accessible and frat boys like them in the very, very early days. I think that... Yeah. That, that it's it's a sign of just how amazingly um, generous and what great people they are that they actually that 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 didn't stick with them you know what I mean like they they left that behind as the kind of like high school social spat that it that it was you know what I like a like a high yeah. school thing that it was and they didn't they didn't take it to heart too much and they were huge boosters of the town I mean just think about how Pylon's entire story would be different without REM, without, without REM really in many ways sort of resurrecting interest in Pylon after they had broken up in 83 um, with the comments about what a great band they were as REM was becoming huge. And then the cover song they did, the cover of Crazy um, and talking, you know, and, and the famous quote when asked, you know, when they became, you know, the Rolling Stones said they're the greatest rock and roll band in America. And they said, no, you know, it's Pylon. So exactly. uh, they're, they're, they're just so generous. Um, they're the way that they, they, you know, really supported and boosted other local bands, um, you know, in two ways, by staying in town, they would have already done that. I mean, even if they didn't personally do it, just the fact that they, they committed their self to stay, themselves to staying in town all those years, but also just the way that they individually and collectively supported other musicians with, with opening slots on their tours, with um, you know helping pay for recording, with agreeing to produce records when that would help a record company uh, sign another local band. I mean, they they just did so many things for people. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, even I would say. Before REM was doing that, the B-52s were doing that yeah. to help everyone out. Um, yeah. But then, you know, they were gone. You know, yeah. they were had moved away. And at a certain point, their influence over what was happening at Athens really died off. And whereas REM, you know, the boosterism was, you know, they felt like this town gave us everything. Um, and we're going to pay it back and and take care of 
whoever these younger bands are coming up that we think deserve a chance. And they, they certainly put their money where their mouth is when it comes to that. And, but I also love that, you know, the fact that, yeah, there were bands, people thought they weren't already enough because, you know, they would come out and they, they were so smart because they would come out and play, they wouldn't have a full set. And so they'd mix in their set until, until they had enough of their own original songs, they'd mix it in with cover songs that they kicked ass. The cover songs were great. Michael looked like Elvis on stage. Um, and he and sounded then, like him too in those early, early moments. It's, oh, he had yeah. that sort of cramps ass kind of, you know, Elvis sort of style going. Yeah. <laughs> from Murmur. For me, I, I had sort of a different a, a view of it in a sense that because Bill played in Love Tractor and, you know, at a point he was going to, he was seriously going to stay in Love Tractor um, and leave REM. And he came to us and what, you know, his decision was, he came to us, he said, are you guys willing to quit school and go on the road and make a go of this? And Armstead and I, we had maybe another semester, a quarter of school work to do. And I was like, no, I'm, I, and, 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 I'm this close. I want to finish. And he went to Peter and Michael and Mike and, and posed the same question. And they said, yes, we will. We're ready to quit school and do this. And to me, that showed this ambition and this intent and these brains, especially with Bill, because Bill understood the record industry more so than any of the other, anyone else in the scene because he'd worked for Capricorn records and um, Capricorn Cap- records and something else, um, you know, in high company for Capricorn, um, the booking yeah. arm that um, Copeland started uh, yep. a bit later. He called it FBI, but he was working for their booking Capricorn's booking. agency. Yeah, and Bill really understood the business and the fact that, and you know, he was sort of the whip cracker and early REM before, you know, Jefferson or Burtis came along and, and he drove things. And the simple fact that, you know, he posed that question to us and then he posed it to them showed to me this really smart intent and show, it was a different window where other people were saying, oh, you know, they're, they're a commercial seller. I'm like, no, they're incredibly smart in what they're doing because Bill is still to the same, one of the smartest people I know. Yeah. He saw what was happening and he knew that the time was right to strike right then and there. And he, he knew not to wait. That well, I mean, he really did have that insider knowledge because he worked with Ian Copeland and Ian Copeland, of course, his brother was in the police and his other brother started IRS. Yeah. So the yeah. um, reason that REM opened for the police when they were like barely six months old at the Fox in Atlanta is because Bill, you know, Bill knew these people. <laughs> he, had the, he had those. That's right. So um, they had to be great, of course, to take, you know, to, to make the music, given the connections. Connections aren't everything. But, um, but Bill, Bill understood the business. Ricky Wilson had to go to the University of Georgia Law Library and look up information about how to figure out how to sign their contracts. You know, <laughs> He had to, he was the amateur law 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 student, um, but yeah. that just shows you how different things were. But between the two, but Bill Bill had the savvy. Bill had a hundred percent savvy, you know. And I mean, I still talk to Bill weekly. In fact, um, 
you know, because we're still all involved musically. Um, and, but, you know, you as know. it trickles out who wrote what song in R.E.M., um, or at least you hear gossip about it, I'd say he was a really damn good songwriter, too. Yeah, I'm not going to go on record with any of that. But you don't have to. I'm just, I'm just saying it in a general way. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I think you'll notice the difference from when he was in the band than when he was out of the band. Bill, I'll, or I'll just say, Bill's a great songwriter. Yeah, that's He's all I'm really saying. Great. He's a great songwriter. You know, in, was it in January, I was in, at his house, and he'd been recording some stuff, and we were practicing at his house, rehearsing. And um, he, well, I was up in his kitchen, and he said, oh, I just recorded something. I said, let me hear it. And he played it, and he finished playing it. I said, okay. So is that going to be a love tractor song? <laughs> you know, because it was so good. It was so absolutely, it was instrumental that was so good. Yeah. And, you know, he's just like, yeah, I'll write this stuff. He doesn't care about putting it out. He's more interested. Owen, his son, is a great songwriter, has a killer band. Um, and there's somebody to look out for. I don't know what the name will be. They have, they have a name. I'm not going to go into that because I know the name will change, but you know, these guys are really, really talented and we'll talk about inheriting it. Um, it strikes me that we haven't given Tim and Jason a chance to say a word. <laughs> no, this I has know, been great. Jay, haven't, you haven't had to do any work. <laughs> this is the easiest episode we've ever had to do. I'm so grateful. So great to guys. talk to Mark you can just insert your questions, where, you know, edit your questions in. You've answered like questions. so many that we typically ask that I'm like, I know oh, you just okay. flew right like, by them. Because one of the big ones we always have to kind of prompt is like, who were the, who are the influencers that are the kind of the promoters of the scene that maybe weren't the musicians, right? There's always somebody. And I think the Jeremy Aries obviously is that person. Or one of those people. Andy Beard. Yeah. Yeah. Even it's though we love Atlanta, he's a, he's huge. And we usually ask about what bands do people maybe not know that were that were important to the scene, and you guys <laughs> covered that as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, you kind of hit on the great. stuff we usually do. So appreciate that. Um, Answer those questions. Dan, if not for Danny Beard, there would be no Athens music thing that ever happened because he provided the recording outlet for it um, and was you know, invested in it. He, to this day, Danny has great, he's a super shy man. He's brilliant. He has great taste in music, had great taste in music back then. Um, Jeremy Ayers also. Um, and some of the people that took a chance, like even members of bands like Curtis Crow and Bill Tabor, who put up the money to open the 40 watt club. You know, there are these sort of, these folks, you know, when it comes to these bands, the Barbecue Killers, Limbo District, were bands that no one's ever heard of and they should have. Is Ot Gap is another one. The, um, you know, I would also argue that some of the um, the women that ran clubs and, and managed clubs and supported places should be mentioned, uh, too, like Jennifer Hartley, who was an artist who ran the grit, which was before it was a restaurant, it was a coffee shop music in uh, a gallery, but also musicians would play there like Vic Chestnut yeah. very importantly in his early days. That's actually where Vic met all these music. 
music people because the folk music uh, and dance society had their weekly hoot nanny at the grit which was at that time a coffee shop art gallery and that was so, also jenna so shu it was jennifer and jenna shu um, um so they're they're just key figures like that um that belina vigo never sort of get the glory but without somebody nurturing those kinds of spaces where things can happen i mean even in later years the work of people like Valina Vago and, and Barry, yeah. Bob, who Barry um, ultimately becoming the owner of the 40 watt to keep that club going. I keep thinking about them in this COVID time and, and wondering how the 40 watt in any of these clubs are going to survive. I mean, I think if any of them do the 40 watt will, but, um, but, but again, I don't think well, people really know that story of Athens that the most important club in town is run and owned by, you know, it's by women, by women. Yeah. Valina and Barry. And, you know, Valina's one of the best bookers in the business. And, you know, uh, luckily they own that building. So yeah. didn't, know. um, didn't Barry get the building in the divorce from Peter? That's what's always the guy. Yes. Yeah. And the house, I think the divorce, I think she, you know, I don't, that's their private business. So that I, I the, can just survive. That's all I meant. She got, <laughs> she got the building. I didn't mean it was anything else bad about it. Just, she got the No, building. not at all. <laughs> you know, that, listen, they're friends, you know. You know, Peter and Barry are friends. They parted amicably. And, love happened. And, yeah. You know, love happened. You know, marriages come, marriages go, people stay friends. That's the one thing about Athens is we're all still friends. Everybody is, in 2005, we had sort of this crazy Athens reunion of all of the people that had gone to art school and played in the bands and were writers for the papers and this, that, and the other. It was called Athens Rewind, and it was, it was like a family reunion. I was, I had, by 11 o'clock the evening, I had lost my voice. I arrived in Athens. I was staying at the Holiday Inn, downtown Athens. I get out of my car. There's Mark Fred, hats a la Happy Face, who basically started the whole scene at the Pyramid Club in New York. And Mark Fred and I shared a house with Michael Stipe, with, I don't know, and name some other bands. We all lived in the same house, 169 Barber Street. Um, and I lost, my voice was gone. I was like talking like this because I'd seen so many people I hadn't seen in years. And these people were all best friends. We, it's so much love. I can't tell you what it's like. It's the oddest thing. It's. Well, I want to, I want to just say to, to that, that, that still goes on, I think, because um, my daughter is now a student at the university of Georgia. And so when she told me she would had bought a ticket to the Love Tractor OOK reunion show. At oh yeah, I, I met her. I talked to her. Yeah. I said, I said, well, you got to introduce yourself to these folks, and I immediately, you know, got in touch <laughs> with Mark, and I said, my daughter's coming, and Armstead and Mark, they just like brought Emma and her friends backstage, and like wined and dined them. You know, these are like nineteen-year-olds. They're just like their eyes are as big as saucers. They they just can't believe it. They feel like they're they're in with royalty. You know, getting to. Gets getting to you know people are like oh my god you you know the people in the band <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think we were trying to introduce them to Owen Bill's son 
So they, they just were blown away by that. And that is the way that um, Mark is not lying when he says that about Athens people. And yeah. it even it's extended to um, the children of, of people that were on the fringes. <laughs> they, get, they get enveloped in that love fest as well. So thank yeah. you. We, we've heard a lot of similar themes when we've, uh, with other scenes, but I think the one that's standing out to me about this one is just the, the giving back part of it. I don't know that we've heard, heard that as strong before, um, which is really unique and uh, really cool to learn. So thanks yeah. for sharing that. I mean, yeah. and we didn't even begin to get into all the ways that REM give, gave back to the community. I mean, they had a, a foundation and they would give to, um, you know, anything in Athens that was happening that, you know, was a progressive or, or environmental cause, they, they, would, they would play benefits early on, but then they would just give money. And, and they almost single-handedly just changed the politics of the town because they were backing liberal candidates and the sort of old establishment of Athens had no idea that anyone had any money. How can these long-haired, scrunchy musicians have any money? And REM backed Winnow Looney, the first time we ever had a liberal politician win in Athens. And oh, they feminist. were like $5,000 or something, but this was a lot of money in Athens politics back then. And, uh, and she, she won the head of the, when the county and city came together, the head of the whole new unified government. And the old Athens establishment had no idea what hit them because they, they just didn't right. understand any of these, you know, they, 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 the best they could come up with was hippies, right? Which wasn't really the right term, that any of these people could have any money. This was just beyond their comprehension. You know? Well, it was also like, you know, Grace, it was like our revenge because exactly. we were, and we were these, we were the ones that were called queer and fag and weirdo and chased all over town. I remember Michael being chased out in front of the SAE house and, yeah. you know, running down the street, holding a globe, you know, because we would get up in the morning and put on these crazy outfits to go to art school, like typical art students. I, you know, I might be in my pajamas at, you know, in design yeah. class, and, but you know, it was like sort of the big fuck you to, to Athens establishment because we were the ones that were the outsiders. We'd been treated like crap by all these Yahoo rednecks. And then REM made a bunch of money and made the decision that they were going to stay and live in the town. And they yeah. could afford to say, okay, now guess what? Fuck yeah. all of you. We can change the whole politic, political base of this town. We've yeah, got the clout and the money to do the it. The most exciting thing to live through ever. It was just to watch these people go down in Georgia. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the feminist, her opponent, her main opponent called her supporters feminist. What was it, Mark? They made a T-shirt. Feminist hippies. Um, yeah. The blacks, feminist hippies, and something else for that that a loony woman, that loony woman, because her name was Bueno Looney. Yeah, yeah, loony. They called her Loon. She beat him, and that was that was sweet revenge. That was really it great. was it was such sweet it revenge. Sounds liberal sense. So <laughs> those right. tactics sound those tactics sound very familiar. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. It's hundred percent familiar. Childless yeah. names for your opponent. Yeah. yeah, a child, you know, just especially after watching the R, any of that RNC stuff, which was, it was like the Carol Burnett show. The yeah. whole thing was like a sketch on the Carol Burnett show from the 70s. Uh, you know, I was just aghast. I mean, I was laughing through my tears. 
Well, to me, I have to say, I didn't quite think I didn't quite think it was that funny. To me, it looked like um, what North Korea would put on if they were doing mm-hmm. a convention. So, Which is pretty funny. I was having I, a hard time laughing. <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, every all everything of it's out of my control. So, uh, you know, I can be horrified or I can just stand back and, you know, be a satirist and find humor in it because it's That's out good. of my control. So how it do we is. get how do we get REM to save us? You know, so yeah. you call Michael. Come on, Mark. Can you call uh, Bill Barry? You're talking to him anyway, so you can get him on that. <laughs> I think they feel like they've done enough saving. Yeah. Well, we need all the help I, we can get. We might need to make another call. I think we need one more big save here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Unfortunately, this has been so fun, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we we like to wrap up. We, we've done this with uh, some of the cities, and it's worked out. Some of it, it, it hasn't. Um, when we talked about Boston, we we kind of settled on there being a sound that there was a a sound to Boston with regards to its alternative rock sound, or Chicago had you know, a lot of industrial influence because of ministry and, and all these bands. And I'm curious if Athens, if you were to describe Athens to someone, does Athens have a sound? Is it, is there a, a certain band that sums up what Athens sounds like, or is it a variety of things? Um, it is a variety. Well, it depends on the, the, the time period of Athens. Um, I would say one of the key things is that it doesn't have something that you can put your finger on, except that, you know, a sound that you can put your finger on, except that there's so many distinct sounds. Um, And to me, it's kind of like a love track. Every song sort of sounds different. But um, early on, I was absolutely right. There's not one sound. Um, there's a real interest in people trying to, until you get the REM kind of copycat groups, which are always a little bit, everybody else kind of is, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> but, yeah. And that doesn't happen really till the second half of the eighties, but, and there's not tons of them, but uh, you, you, uh, it's not, a, it's not cool to tr- sound like somebody else. You have to have your, your, you have to try to have your own sound. If you may not succeed, you may fail, but you have to try to have your own sound. Um, I would say, will say though that one very strong thing, it's not true of every Athens band, but it, it is a very strong commonality is music you can dance to. 100%. That's what I was going to say. Four on the floor. Yeah. So, it started out as entertainment for our friends and also to blow our friends' minds. And, but everyone had to be able, it wasn't a concert where people sat, stood or sat and watched a band. It was all about participation. And that it was dance. And so there's a few exceptions, I would say, like, you know, maybe some people danced to Limbo District, but a lot of people didn't know how to. And, you know, Vic Chestnut wasn't much of a dance, a dance musician. Um, and that's no. a weird moment. But, but most of the bands that, that, you, that, are, that are known as Athens, you, you, you can dance to them. Yeah, it's very well, key. We've gone way over our normal uh, time, but I'm I'm sure that the people listening are gonna be happy that we did because this was a lot of fun and, and not only a lot of fun, but it was extremely educational. Yeah. We learned so much about this scene. I'm so happy we finally got to talk about it and um, have you both on. 
truly this was well, this you. was exceptional um i want to plug the love tractor re-release is coming out uh would you say it was going to be this fall with the uh, uh single and the and the re-release of the album we have a single coming out for record store day which has been moved to sometime in october right. and the album release is november 6th okay and where can and people fun- go to pick that up or where well, we'll be right now they can pre it can be pre-ordered at um happy happy birthday to me records h h let me t- what is the url hold on one second i'll tell you the url yeah hhbtm.com that's hhbtm.com <laughs> you can go online and pre-order and there are a number of pre-order packages with t-shirts with colored vinyl i prefer the white vinyl CDs, buttons, bandanas, you name it, we got it. And the band is on Facebook, I believe, has a has an yeah. active page there. Facebook Excellent. and Instagram. Websites we're not so much interested in. It's sort of past the day of people having their own websites. It's coming from somebody that builds websites. <laughs> you're you're also talking to yeah, that's what Mr. Jason is a is a designer as well yeah Yeah. fortunately or not the people are on facebook so well you lead them from facebook to a website yeah but you know for bands i you know i just don't see a need for a band to have a website any longer you know other things for commerce yes but you know we direct people to the label um because i always feel like if i'm directing people to the label it's going to you know, the label's going to sell more other records. They make more money. They can put more money into us. And they like us doing that. So they're going to pay more attention to us. So, Well, thank you, Mark, yeah. for coming on and, and sharing all the stories. And thank you to Grace, who has the book out, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. That's out uh, as of this spring. And uh, suggests heading over. Yeah, as of this past spring. Oh, past um, spring. Yeah. And uh, do you have a website that people should go to to grab that, or do you want to send them to Amazon or some giant corporation like that? Um, I think it's great if you buy it from your local indie bookstore, whichever there you go. one that might be. Um, if you don't have one, you can you can buy it from New Dominion Books in Charlottesville, and they'll ship it to you. Um, you can buy it on the evil Amazon, but let's don't. <laughs> And uh, I do have a website, um, although I now know from Mark and all of you that they're out of favor. I do have a website. <laughs> it's Grace, like having a MySpace page now. It is. <laughs> and it's somebody uh, that, that was in the scene and has read the book. I wholeheartedly endorse the book. It is the definitive document of what has gone on there. So read that book. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for having us, Tim and Jason. Great to be here. Absolutely. When you were talking about the Boston scene, did you talk yeah. about the band? Um, I think the band is called Come. They're a hardcore band because Arthur Johnson from the Barbecue Killers moved to Boston and then he was in a Boston band. And another guy from Athens too, Sean, and I'm forgetting Sean. Sean O'Brien. Sean O'Brien. They were the, they were, I think Come was a foursome and they were, the bass player drummers, you know, the, the rhythm section. I know what you're talking about because um, Chris Brokaw was in that band. I remember that band. I don't remember if they came up in the episode or not. Um, right. I, I, I know who they are because um, 
I, Chris Brokaw was in that band and he was in some other stuff. I just um, thought it was an interesting Boston connection. I didn't know if, if you knew about that, that it's just an interesting little side tidbit. <laughs> yeah. That was one of those bands where it, we probably, we, Jay and I worked in college radio in the nineties. So we definitely got that CD at the radio station amongst the 500 other CDs we would get every week from yeah. all the labels. Oh, yeah. And uh, when it was, you know, just getting dumped on every, every week, our new shipment from, from everybody. So yeah, I definitely remember the band, but I don't remember specifically if they came up um, on that episode, but that was a fun episode. It was with uh, Bill Janovitz of Buffalo Tom and, Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo oh, and cool. um, Aaron Prino of The Shield of Divine, which was, uh, was a lot of fun. All, all the Digging Your Scene episodes have been a blast. We've had great guests for all of them. So I definitely well, feel... If you ever uh, need someone to interview, Arthur would be... A, I mean, having interviewed about 100 people for this book, Mark was a great interview. <laughs> Arthur was a great <laughs> interview. Arthur also grew up in Atlanta. So he, he was going to the Atlanta clubs when he was in high school. Um, Me too. And had just a great, a great, uh, you know, Arthur a little bit younger than Mark. Um, just he just has a lot of great stories that cover Atlanta, Athens, Boston. He can talk about Laura Carter all day. Um, he'd awesome. be a great interview if, you're, if you need one. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'm sure great. Come is going to come up at some point. So, yeah, it, it, our goal is to just to get to every band at least once. Good, good. To put out a record in the '90s. Well, this is great. I'm going to take off, but I really, it was so much fun. Mark, great to talk to you too. You Bye. too, Grace. Thank Bye. you, Bye, Grace. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Right. Have fun editing all that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So if you'd like to suggest an album, go to digmeoutpodcast.com. That's where you can drop a suggestion in our suggest an album field. You can join us at Patreon for as little as two bucks a month to support the podcast. Get to vote in our polls that we mentioned regarding various albums that are suggested. And if you join us at different levels, the higher you go, the more things you get access to, including uh, at any level, you get the box newsletter where we review new releases from 80s and 90s relevant artists, books, movies. And of course, albums every week delivered to your doorstep via email. And if you like what you heard, please consider consider leaving us some positive feedback at Apple Podcasts. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Dig Me Out.